0: Greetings in the name of Jesus this evening. Glad for each one's presence again here tonight. Before we get into the message tonight, I'd like to give you an opportunity to share with me, and I'm wondering if you can come up with several attributes of God. When you think about God, what do you think about? What words or qualities describe him? An attribute is a characteristic or a quality. So you might think about finishing this sentence. God is what? Holy. Holy. All loving. All loving. Faithful. 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 Just. Just. All mm-hmm. Long, suffering. Long suffering. All knowing. All knowing. Mighty. Mighty. Did I hear you right? Light. light. yes. He's mighty, too. He is light. Any others? Eternal. Mm-hmm. I am thinking of an attribute of God this evening, and you've maybe touched it, but nobody has said it specifically. And I'd like to read several scriptures in introduction, starting in Matthew chapter 9, reading several accounts where Jesus interacted with people, and I want you to watch as I read these, see if you can pick up a theme in these passages. They're quite unique but there is something that is the same about each one. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Go over to the book of Luke now to chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 beginning at verse 36. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. Behold, A woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. I'll stop there, go to chapter 18. And verse 15. Luke 18:15. They brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. And then one more yet in chapter 19 of Luke, I'm going to begin at verse 1. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And He ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house." he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. and If I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much As he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. I don't know if you picked up a theme in those verses. Be interesting to ask you. It's a little bit obscure, but did you notice that in every one of those accounts, according to the people around him, Jesus was interacting with the wrong people? Do you notice that? In the first passage, when he was gathered together with these sinners and tax collectors after he called Matthew, they were looking on and said, What are you doing eating with sinners? That was a similar theme when Simon invited him to come into his house. And this woman, a woman of the city it says, a heathen woman, one that probably lived lived an immoral life, came in and started washing his feet and Simon said inside himself the bible says that if this man was a prophet Jesus if he was actually a prophet he would know that this woman is a sinner then Jesus interacts with the children and the disciples are trying to shoo away the children again wrong group of people Jesus you're not you don't have time for children and in the account here we just read one more time Zacchaeus At the house of Zacchaeus, he was eating with sinners, and the guests, those around him, were murmuring, how can someone go and have a meal at the house of a sinner? Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. But before I do that, I just want to capture the context here a little bit. In verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul declares this bold verse here, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to Jews and Gentiles, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Then he says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And then he spends the next number of verses describing how this unrighteousness was projecting itself out in society at that time. And we see the same things today. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgeth, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself... For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them that do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance?' But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to him who by patient continuous in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, to them eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. Tribulation and anguish unto every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also the Gentile. But glory, honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now let me just read... This in a short summary, verse 16 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then to chapter 2 and verse 9. Tribulation and anguish unto every soul of men that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory, honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. You know what the attribute I want to look at tonight is? God. That God is impartial. That God provides equally to every living soul the opportunity to be made right with Him through Jesus Christ. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. We have that phrase again and again. And that is Paul's illustration of providing it to all people. I'd like you to turn with me in the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 18. In the time of Ezekiel here, the people were bringing an accusation against God that he was not fair. The phrase we have here in this passage over and over is that he is not equal. What well, means that he's not fair. I don't know if you've ever heard that cry in your life, but I've heard a lot of people say it's not fair. Life isn't always fair, but God is fair. And this is the context here. I'm going to read from verse 20. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And we can go back further and get more of the context here, but I'm not going to this evening. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon Him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Him. But if the wicked will turn, that's the Old Testament term that means repent. If the wicked will turn... From all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? What is God saying? He's making a tremendous promise here to people, to us, that if we will turn from our sins and return unto the Lord, that all the unrighteousness that we have done in our past, no matter what it is, He's saying, I will remember it no more if I can claim from another passage. He is going to wash us white as snow. He says, come and reason with me together. Though you bring your sins as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. You can come to me, a sinner, and I will send you away, a saint. This is the glorious promise of the living God that He has made for us in Jesus Christ. Now that is a tremendous promise. All of us need that. It's a wonderful truth. It's a st- It's one we come back to over and over again. We read in 1 John 1, 9, if if we are faithful and just to confess... Someone help me. There we go. If I get the first part first, it'll come out a lot better. Thank you. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the promise we have from God. And that is a wonderful promise. But God doesn't stop there in Ezekiel 18. Verse 24, But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, Shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. That's a very different promise. It's also a promise. What What is God saying? He's saying to us in our day that you can live a righteous life, you can do all the right things, you can be right with God, And if you turn away and choose a path of wickedness, if you choose to walk in darkness, if you choose to hide sin in your life and make it a part of who you are and refuse to deal with that sin, then all the righteousness that you have done will be forgotten, and that sin will separate you from God. That's the promise. The example is the man in Matthew 18, where he talks about the servant that was forgiven this tremendous debt, and then he went out and grabbed his fellow servant by the neck. Do you remember that story? And when he wouldn't refuse the fellow servant, his other f- friends nagged on him back to the king who had forgiven him all that debt, and he was brought again before the king, and he was thrown in prison and turned over to the torment tormentors, until he had paid all that he owed the king. You know what that means? Not the debt that came into place from the time he was forgiven until the time he grabbed the servant by the neck. All the debt. Brothers and sisters, there's a tremendous promise. If we live in sin, we can turn from that sin and we can be righteous before God. But there is also a tremendous warning that just because we sit on church pews every Sunday, we're not exempt from the possibility that we could turn away from our righteousness and turn into wickedness. And God will judge us for that wickedness. No matter how much we hide it from man, God knows. Then God says here in verse 25, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not equal or not fair. Hear now, O hosts of Israel, Is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and dieth in them for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die. Again, when the wicked man... Turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed and doth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore turn yourselves and live ye. What is God saying in this passage? That I am fair. I'm not partial. The righteous shall live. They turn from their wickedness and the wicked shall die in their wickedness if they refuse to. I also had to think about Peter. He had to learn this story in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius had been praying and God had promised him of uh, an encounter with God and so he prepared Peter by sending him up On the roof, and he brought this blanket. And in his vision of all these animals that were unclean animals to the Jew, I have often wondered what was all in there. And the sheet came down, and Peter saw it. And God said, "Take and kill and eat." And Peter says, "No, I can't eat that. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to eat this." And the sheet came down. I think it was three times. And each time, again, he was told, "Kill and eat." Why did this happen? Because God was not interested that he starts eating snakes and alligators and whatever else was all in there, but that Peter would understand that God is presenting the reconciliation to him through the blood of Christ to all people, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, if I can say it that way. And as Peter's lights start to come on, Then there is Cornelius' servant out at the gate and he goes with him and later in the chapter in Acts chapter 10 verse 34 and 35 Peter opens his mouth and said of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. God is not a respecter of persons. God is just. God is fair. God is equal Now turn with me to James chapter 2 I suppose none of you are surprised this evening to hear that God is no respecter of persons that he is just that he equally treats everyone fairly and rightly I'd like to read this passage here in James 2 and have us then consider what about us. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in the good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor, Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, He is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Verse 1 says, my brethren, writing to Christians, he says, don't have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. In other words, don't be a Christian or don't claim to be a Christian while also being partial, while also having respect of persons. You see, brothers and sisters tonight, partiality is not consistent with faith in Jesus Christ. It's contradictory to the very nature of Christianity. I just want you to imagine for a moment, what if God had favoritism? What if the gospel was actually only for the Jews? Or if it was only for the rich? Or you had to have a certain last name before you could actually get your sins forgiven. Or you had to be of a royal line of some kind. Or you had to have a certain skin color. Or a certain status. Or something had to be unique about you in order to be eligible for the gospel. You say that's preposterous. It's crazy. Of course it is. Because we are all God's children. Now the thing is, it's equally ridiculous For us as Christians to have partiality one towards another. And brothers and sisters tonight, I don't know about you, but it's a whole lot easier for me to understand clearly that God is not partial than it is for me to be consistently impartial in the way I relate with others. And that is my concern this evening. How do we treat others? Does it make a difference who they are, what they look like, what their personality is like, what they enjoy. You know what happens if that's how we relate with people? We, we are revealing a very limited understanding of what God is and how God is. Now there are many, many examples of partiality. James uses this one of a rich, well-dressed man that comes into the congregation and a poor man that comes into the congregation. Now maybe where this has the most context for us is if we're looking at a building project in our churches, which man are we going to make sure is welcomed and we want to make sure that he comes back again and again? Why? We are being selective. We can be. Someone comes in with filthy clothes, we make all kinds of assumptions about them. Now we can look down our noses and we can be partial in many ways. Maybe it's because it's another cultural group. We say certain things and we have certain cultural uh, perceptions and stereotypes about, I'm almost scared to use any names, but whether it's about Mexicans, or it's about religious groups like Muslims, or it's about the Old Order Mennonites, or it's about the Amish, or it's about this, or it's about that. Maybe it's a different personality. Some that we don't have as much time for because either they're too soft or maybe they're too harsh or they talk too much or they're too quiet or the list goes on and on. They're just different from us. And therefore, we hold them at arm's length. Maybe it's the family in your church that is unique. Unique is a unique word, right? You know, we're all unique. Did you know that? Whenever I think everyone else is unique, then... Maybe I should look in the mirror. I might be the unique one. Maybe it's in our youth group. It's some people that ask for a ride, young people, and every time they ask, you're always full. You don't have room for them in your vehicle. I was a youth once too, and I know that youth can be pretty mean in some of those ways. Partiality. Maybe it's even in our own families. I know this happens, we can read about it throughout Scripture again and again, where there is favorite children from parents. That is incredibly destructive, and it ought never be, especially not for one professing a relationship with Christ, because the faith of the Lord Jesus is not consistent or compatible with respect of persons. Maybe it's more respect that you have for some of your church leaders than for others. Maybe it's a special teacher, a favorite teacher you have in your classroom. The list goes on and on and on. As many relationships as you have, there is a potential that you are treating those people partially. That you are selective. Anytime we don't treat someone with equal respect and kindness, when we are unwilling to invest time or presence... You know when someone invites you for lunch and it's like, oh, really? I'm going to have to spend four hours with that person? Maybe you never think like that. I hope you don't. That's partiality, all right? The next person invites you to lunch and you can't wait to go there. Remember again, this is partiality and those actions are incompatible with the relationship with Christ. I want you to notice here the cause of partiality. He gives us three things here that I see. First of all, in verse 3. Ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, and sit here under my footstool. What is the first problem here? Why is there partiality? Something didn't seem right. <laughs> Why is there partiality? Some of you are watching him, but not listening. <clears throat> Why is there partiality? Because there was wrong values. You know what happened when these two men came in the door? These who were partial assessed those two men, two men, and the value they represented by the clothing they were wearing. Right? They were wrong values. They made something out of the one man because of the nice clothes he wore and they made less out of the other man because of the the lesser clothes he was wearing. How often do we make the same kinds of mistakes when we have the wrong values? We isolate someone out of our youth circle, for example, because we value coolness, that they're trendy, that they're whatever the word is today, all right? They're with it. And that other person isn't with it. That's a wrong value. We value the with-it-ness and we we try to have friends that are with it. We don't want to be with that person because they're not with it. We have a favorite child because they think most like us. These are wrong values. Secondly, he says here in verse 4, Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? The second thing I see here is that there is a wrong judgment. So we set up wrong values and then we judge a person's worthwhileness or worthiness of our attention based on our values. Now we, dis- we distinguish between one and another. It leads to partiality because of this wrong judgment. Remember the, in the introduction I read that account of Simon and the woman that came into Simon's house and was washing the hairs on Jesus' feet, or washing Jesus' feet with ointment with her hairs. Not washing the feet. <laughs> the parable that Jesus told next is what I wanted to tell you. Now you're not going to be able to listen. Do you know what Jesus told him? He told him a short parable about two men, one that owed a greater debt than the other. And he asked Simon, which person do you think will love most? You know what Simon said? He said, the one that was forgiven most. That is a right judgment. Jesus said to him, Simon, you have spoken well. You know what Simon's problem was? He didn't understand how much he needed Jesus. All of us need... Jesus.
1: All of us
0: are as wretched as the most... The person we push the most to the side. You know what the problem is? The wrong judgment. We don't understand, well, how much we are in need. How much we are in isolation in culture. How much we are removed from the best, if you will. We need, they need. When we recognize our need then their need doesn't look so intense to us, or doesn't look so insurmountable. So it's a wrong judgment. In verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, Had not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called?' It's a wrong calculation. (laughs) Paul or James is saying to them, you're honoring the rich man, but the rich man is the one that drags you into the court. The rich man is the one that oppresses you. The rich man is the one that is taking things from you, not the poor man. He's saying to them, you've made a wrong calculation and I wonder how often this has happened to us. Many a young man has chosen his friends based on how fun and cool they are. Only to discover that those same fun, cool friends in a few short years are holding him back from his best relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember when I was in grade school, we went to a, we moved to a different community for a few years and I was the only one in that public school that was from the Mennonite faith. I learned a lot of things in that school and they weren't good things. And I remember my grade six teacher pulling me aside trying to help me and he tried to tell me that I'm not like these other boys and I shouldn't have those boys as my friends. Those boys were the cool boys, okay? And I had finally started to make some inroads with them after a couple years in that school. Looking back now, I can see so easy that that, he was right. That wasn't good for me. But in my immature state at that time, that That value, those things, that calculation meant I wanted to be in that place and it was not healthy for me. In this case, they were favoring the rich and it was the rich that persecuted them. Brothers and sisters tonight, what is the cure for partiality? What does he say here in verse 8? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. You know why we have partiality? Because we got cracks in our love. That's why. Jesus said, the greatest command is to love Father with all heart, soul, and mind. But the second, he said, is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's talking about here. That law, that royal law, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. How often have we in partiality, isolated someone else to prop ourselves up or to make ourselves look better. Was that love? No, it's not love. The problem is we don't love well. You cannot, cannot demonstrate love equally to all neighbors and also have preferential treatment for some. Those two things do not go together. Either we love well or we are partial. And you know what I have learned or observed several times over the years? It's amazing to me how often someone who has experienced rejection also becomes very quick to isolate others. It's a little bit of a power struggle. You finally get a little standing in your life and you have the ability to isolate someone else or to cast someone else aside and you do it. Don't do that. It's not long, especially you see this with young people and in youth groups as that changes so quickly. When you're young and you're trying to find your spot, it can be really difficult to make friends. And some of the ones that have had friends for a while, it's easy for them. Then you remember how that felt? Once you're finally in a place where you're well-established in that youth group, can you do the favor to the next ones and just include them instead of doing the exact same thing that you resented when you were at that stage? I see that happen over and over again. Don't be the one that felt that rejection but now chooses to reject others. I've also observed that those who have the strongest character have the least need for these clicky friendships. I've watched a lot of young people gather together into groups at Bible school and it always intrigues me to watch that social experiment happen year after year. It's always the same. I don't mean that critically. I'm sure it would have been the same when I was a youth. There are some that are just Drawn by a, some kind of a magnetic field, it feels like, into a little group of friends, and they are having the best time in the world. The rest of the people there are just kind of in the way, it feels like, to them. But there are always others that have just some strength of character inside that can treat each person that they interact with equally. And I've had this conversation with young men many times over the years. What should I do? I have this intense desire to be with a certain young lady. And how do I conduct myself? It's really simple. Treat everyone the same. That's what you should do. And that's what we should do all the time. Whatever, Whoever your favorite person is, treat everyone as if they're your favorite person. Can we just do that? It would take care of so much partiality in our lives. We actually reveal a tremendous weakness of character and a lack of love when we need to have this small little click or cluster of people that we can get along with and lots that we prefer to avoid. The last thing I'd like you to notice this evening is the seriousness of partiality. Do you see what James says here in verse 9. If you have respect to persons, you should work on that. Is that what he says? No, he says, ye commit sin. And he goes on to say, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Then he uses the example of adultery and killing or murder you don't commit adultery but you murder, you're still breaking the law. He's using that comparison back to verse 9. If you commit this respect for persons, if you're kind to some and rude to others, that's not just a character flaw. That's not just a weakness. It's not just something you ought to work on. You commit sin. That's what he's saying. That's what the Bible says. And why is that so important? Because remember that God is no respecter of persons. God offered to you the gift of salvation freely to you. That love was given to you. That love is now in you if we have become Christians. And that love should flow out of us to others. And if it doesn't do that equally, then we have a problem internally. We have committed sin. Act as God's children. Mercy triumphs judgment. That's what he's saying in verse 13. Don't be guilty of the sin of partiality. You know what we reveal? Just like Simon did, we reveal that we're really not very thankful for what God has done for us. Let's bow our heads to pray.